<laughs> so, uh, the top headline of the day, we're, we're streaming as usual, we've got the audio effects as usual, we did the, the air horn. So, the top story is from the New York Times from Kevin Roos. He suggests that Jack Dorsey joins other tech leaders who seem to have grown tired of managing their platforms amid increasing, not, not because tech is in a really interesting moment with more opportunity than has ever existed in the history of the planet Earth, with the boom of VR, the boom of crypto, the boom of DeFi and, and uh, 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 gosh, the quantum computing, genetic engineering. You know, Jack's just bored. He wants to go sit on a beach, right? No, he's not leaving based on everything he's been saying for the past nine months. That, by the way, he said in his own Twitter account, if uh, if I could, uh, if it, you know, I would prefer to just focus on Bitcoin exclusively. If I wasn't running Twitter, I would focus on that full time. Yes, I may. I mean, that's uh, I'm I'm trying to do it verbatim to Jack's tweet, but Jack made it abundantly clear that if it was up to him, he would focus on bringing Bitcoin to the whole world. He sees that as a huge opportunity. He even did a tweet 48 hours ago all about that, all about how the dollar is, uh, you know, basically keeping a, a kind of imperialistic tool that uh, keeps people in check. And he thinks Bitcoin is a way to bring more uh, equality, equity to the world, financial equity, financial equality. So, and he's doing, spending, he, and he's not moving slow with it either. Uh, with the TBD project. And it seems like he needs to step down from Twitter to kind of legally do that. Similarly with Blue Sky, with decentralizing social media. And those two things probably go together, both Bitcoin and Twitter. We know those go together. We, they've just announced that they're going to enable Lightning with Bitcoin on Twitter, for example, at the same time that they're going to do shopping, by the way. So to assume, uh, as he says here, that he's grown tired of managing, that tech leaders are growing tired of managing their platforms, well, are you, it, perhaps he's referring to David Marcus from Facebook who just resigned today because he said for too many days in a row he woke up with the entrepreneurial bug to do cool new things because he's a financial services dude. And the financial services world is going through one of the most interesting revolutions in history. So I don't think uh, this is about um, uh, uh, leaders who seem to have grown tired of managing their platforms amid political controversy. These are people who uh, are doers. And, and right now is an amazing time to be building something new, just like at the beginning of the web just like they did at the beginning of the web. So, innovators going to innovate. And they're going to, especially in moments when there's new platforms being born, like the metaverse, like Web3 with crypto, and those two things are going to merge head-on anyways. So it's just a ridiculously, incredibly exciting moment in 2021 with all of the big platforms that are happening simultaneously, synchronistically. Um... Yeah, I, 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 I don't really buy the 
people are resigning due to growing tired of the platforms. They, he might have a bit of a point in that um, if you build a, a super successful company that changes the world, then the regulators start wanting to get involved and innovators don't like playing, you know, don't like spending half their day in legal proceedings and talking with lawyers. That's not why we became innovators. We became innovators because we don't like boring corporate people who just talk in legalese all day. So he might have a very good point there. That uh, that I think that's a more realistic reason, and that's probably why, uh, and I can even make the argument pr better than he's doing, by saying Jeff Bezos stepped down at a time when Amazon was being requested to do lots of Senate hearings, and clearly Mark Zuckerberg doesn't like going to speak at Senate hearings, and he's sending people in his in his uh, in his place. And the Google founders, you know, brought somebody in as a CEO that you know does the Senate hearings, and I'm pretty sure Steve Jobs didn't like doing those Senate hearings either and talking with legislators. That's that's the last thing innovators want to do is talk with bureaucrats and politicians who still, in 2021, can't figure out how to do a reply all on an email. You're talking about people who invented email, who invented all of these technologies that we're using and the gadgets we're using and all of the services and products that we're using, explaining to geriatric people who can't figure out how to reset their passwords. And this has been going on for a decade. So absolutely, if, you're, if your assertion is that they've grown tired of that, then you're absolutely correct. They abso that is absolutely, you know, a, com a comical version of Dante's seventh level inferno of hell for, you know, the people who have built these platforms, is to talk with, you know, these uh, very old people who, frankly, you know, uh, have better things to do than to quiz these tech geniuses about how to reset their passwords. So, um... Yeah, they're going to go on and do other things and get other people to come in as CEOs if that's what it takes to get those other people to go speak at those Senate hearings. And, and then Jack's going to go innovate again. So he's got, you know, somebody at Twitter who's going to be the, the CTO, is going to be the CEO. That guy can go do the Senate hearings. And Jack can spend his time in the, in the woodshed, woodshedding, which is where he likes to be. So um, the next article is related. It's, a, it's Ben Thompson from Stratechery, the tech blog, that Twitter should uh, consider changing its business model as its ad revenue remains weak. That's the headline. Cheryl's going to share it right now uh, at the top of the Twitter room. I will share it at the top of the Clubhouse room. And here, here we go. So you, there we go. Boom. And Let's see if that goes through. Twitter has a new CEO. What does the new business... What about its new business model? Well, the new business model is social commerce, which they just started on Friday, which we read in this room. Uh, I think he must have missed it, and I, maybe he doesn't know what it is. Um, and it was a, it's a huge partnership with uh, none other... It's, I, I don't blame him for missing it because their partner in this uh, social shopping thing. It's only the largest retailer on the fucking planet. It's this tiny little uh, shop on the corner of a street you never heard of. They're called Walmart, you know, and it's just a cute little, you know, they're just, it's a cute little partner. Probably won't go anywhere. <laughs> 
So it's called social shopping. People are going to start shopping on social networks because it's a far better experience than shopping on Amazon where you've got five stale, old, crusty images of stock photos and you can't even see an unboxing video. And that's why people are going to YouTube and typing in unboxing video because they want to know everything about that product. Well, as good as unboxing videos are, and my God, as viral as unboxing videos are, and it's hard to find an unboxing video that doesn't have a million views, live shopping is 10,000 times better than an old historic unboxing video because now you are watching it live with the person doing the unboxing and you can ask them questions in real time about the device with other people live in real time that's obviously obviously better than the the unboxing video where you cannot you can leave a message for the content creator and hopefully they might respond to it a week later or i can have a conversation with the person live as they unbox the product and they can tell me exactly how many items they have in inventory right now. And what they're doing in Thailand where I live is they put a little counter at the top of the screen and they show you in real time how many units they have left. And they have a little bell many times where they say, I have 100 left. Oh, no, I got 90 left. Oh, boy, I've got 50 left. You better act fast. There's 20 left and now they're gone. And what's great about that is... When you're buying on e-commerce, oftentimes you order it and you're not totally sure that you're even going to get it in the age of supply chain weaknesses. And in social commerce, the person has it right there sitting next to them. They've got 50 boxes of whatever gadgets stacked up behind them. So it removes a lot of the friction of the e-commerce. You know the person selling it. You know how to get in contact with them directly. You get to see the actual product that's going to come to your house, and you know that they have the inventory. This is superior in every way you can imagine to relatively to traditional e-commerce a la Amazon. And this is why it's going to blow doors. And this is why Twitter is in a better position to sell you stuff than Amazon is. Way better. Far, 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 far better. Does, do we get it now, Ben? Do we get the? Do we see the business model now, Ben? Do we see it? Walmart. You've heard of it? Largest retailer in the world. Maybe you've heard of it. They're also doing this other little, tiny little retailer called IKEA. Maybe you've heard of it. IKEA, IKEA, IKEA. I don't know. It, it's a tiny little store. I've never heard of it. So. The next big article, shall we, Cheryl, is Twitter bans. It's a Twitter three for everybody. It's a hat trick of Twitter today. Uh, Twitter bans sharing private images and videos without consent, with exceptions for newsworthiness and public figures, and will remove content that users report. And this is getting some spicy feedback from some people. And it's basically the policy doesn't apply to public figures for the most part. But there are exceptions, and let's rather than read Engadget's regurgitation of it, let's go right to Twitter's blog, which is right where Engadget went. No point in reading CNN and New York. I hesitate to even read the New York Times' regurgitation of this. Why not just go to the actual source of the actual news, where you know Twitter did their own post? So is is Cheryl sharing the actual 
uh, post. That's what I'm going to share over here in Clubhouse. So let's do it like this. Boom. And let's update the link like that. Bada boom. There it is. Expanding our private information policy to include media. Right? Okay. So it says, beginning today. As part of our ongoing efforts to build tools with privacy and security at the core, we're updating our existing private information policy and expanding its scope to include private media. Under our existing policy, publishing other people's private information, such as phone numbers, addresses, and IDs, is already not allowed on Twitter. That's called doxing. This includes threatening to expose private information or incentivizing others to do so. There are growing concerns about the misuse of media and information that is not available elsewhere online as a tool to harass, intimidate, and reveal the identities of individuals. Sharing personal media, such as images or videos, can potentially violate a person's privacy. Now, this turns into a huge, you know, they're, gonna, they're really setting themselves up to have a difficult policing problem here, moderation problem. What if I find a video of somebody being a jackass in a Walmart. Can I not share that? Uh, what if it doesn't truly identify who the person is? What if they don't like it and they request it to be taken down? What if it's a celebrity? What if... Uh, and somebody shared a really interesting example. It's a Google map of a neighborhood Um satellite view of somebody's home or their dog. So it says, the misuse of private media can affect everyone but can have a disproportionate effect on women, activists, dissidents, and members of minority communities. When, well, for example, hang on, how about... What about the memes? What about memes? And what about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse running through Kenosha... Um, and all the people in, you know, riots and whatever, uh, is that, is that newsworthy? Uh, did I just expose, uh, you know, the guy who just drove through the holiday parade? Uh, he got caught because of cameras by people having photos, you know, cameras in their pockets and they were sharing those photos. Is that newsworthiness? Uh, I'm sure he didn't like it. If he contacted Twitter, would they take it down? So, when we receive a report that a tweet contains unauthorized private media, yeah, you didn't, hey, I did not authorize you to take a video of me driving through that holiday parade. We will now take action in line with our range of enforcement options. While our existing policies and Twitter rules cover explicit instances of abuse behavior, this update will allow us to take action on media that is shared without any explicit abusive content provided it's posted without the consent of the person depicted. This is a part uh, of our ongoing work to align with our safety policies with human rights standards. And it's, I, I think it's incredibly well intended. It's going to be tricky to uh, moderate. Um, and, and, I, and I, don't, I do not envy the Twitter moderation team and I, and I do applaud them for taking on even more responsibility, um, which seems to be the essence of, of what they're getting at here. But um, 
it's you're now got, you just opened yourself up to a whole lot more uh, messages in your inbox and and not easy messages to address because you're going to have you're basically putting yourself in a position where you're now getting a lot of messages saying, "Hey, take down this content. That's me. I don't want it up there." That's going to be tricky to handle. Somebody wanted to chime in there. Isn't that yeah, isn't that isn't that the challenge of pretty much all social media platforms, right? Um, that is just who does the moderation, and if you don't, uh, and then we see all the problems that pops out all over the world, because um, you know, as a society, as a human being, anyway, uh, we get the whole amplification. You know, the, we talked about this <laughs> forever in tech news. Um, then if you don't, and then you know. I mean, the Christchurch um, shooting was live, live broadcasted on on Facebook. If someone doesn't do something, um, you know, those things will 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 be part of our social life. And if you don't, um, then we get stuck in what we have been saying. Somebody somewhere have to moderate those kinds of content. And I'm just wondering, you know, when social media is doing these types of things it is going to be part of their business model right i mean they they have money making getting data and types of content and also they have the algorithm that we discussed before where uh you know those algorithms actually do amplify based on engagement and things like that so what do you do that's the biggest question right you can't you can't just ignore it then you know, you get all the complaints that we heard we heard about. Tech people are going to be dragged into Congress and explain this, explain that. And if they try to do, like you said, it's not an easy thing to do. You know, uh, we, we like our freedom and we want to be allowed to speak. But then what is it allowed? What's not? You know, what's the right thing to do for me? Is it the right thing to do for you, Tyler? So... It is, it is a really sticky situation, but that's also part of the business model that they chose. If I pick a business model that doesn't really work, I don't get off the ground, right? So they have to find some kind of balance. Okay. Well, because yeah, as somebody says on Twitter, that Joseph Cox questions about how Twitter uh, will be putting themselves in a decision around <clears throat> what is public interest um, what is newsworthy? That that becomes a really that's what that's what I'm saying. That's a very unenviable tightrope to walk. Um, but if they're up for it, God bless them. So the next one is Qualcomm unveils the new predecessor. I'm sorry, the successor to the Snapdragon 888, which has been the main processor in smartphones for more than a minute, and now they just announced the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1. And Huawei just announced the new, the first phone to have the new upgraded Snapdragon 8 Generation 1 with improved camera and AI processing and up to 20% better performance and 30% better power efficiency. So better Android phones coming your way soon. David Marcus, the co-creator of Diem, the Facebook currency, uh, digital currency, and head of Novi, Facebook digital wallet, will leave Facebook at the end of the year in just a few weeks. Probably in two weeks, because he probably has vacation time coming up in around December 15th anyways. So, um, a bit of a quick exit there. 
And the question is, why? And he says it's because he's been waking up too many days in a row with the itch to do, you know, as an entrepreneur. I buy that, actually, uh, as I ranted about earlier. However, it it is a little timing-wise. Um, I, I wouldn't blame anyone who thinks that this is, you know, uh, a, an interesting consequence of the Francis Hogan whistleblower Wall Street Journal Facebook files, which has kicked up a whole lot of dust and mistrust about Facebook at a time when they really, really needed that trust to make this digital currency and wallet happen. And people don't are kind of slow to embrace uh, this Facebook Novi wallet and, and DM currency because there's just a, a rather low amount of trust in it with Facebook at the moment. And um, that might actually be the, the big consequence of um, the whistleblower thing. But also just Facebook historically has struggled with user trust and abusing user trust. So uh, interesting to see David Marcus step down. For those who don't know, he, he led the Facebook Messenger and uh, is an incredibly senior person at the at Facebook, and his leaving also, um, timing wise, is interesting because they had the CTO step down in the, right during the beginnings of the whistleblower uh, Facebook files, and one wonder, at least I'm wondering, did he intentionally delay his departure until that dust has settled? And it and it has settled, but. But, but only by a minute. And because if he had departed at the same time as the CTO, that would have led a lot of people to reasonably assume that the house of cards is, is falling there. Um, Kara Swisher, who knows, uh, has a lot of tight, long, a, lot of, a lot of connections into Facebook, a very uh, informed individual on, the, on these types of things, says, color me, not, color me not surprised. For the record, I like David Marcus and think he has tried some innovative stuff there, which in, absolutely he has. So the next one, Adobe uh, says that U.S. consumers spent $10.7 billion online on Cyber Monday below expectations, down 1.4% from last year as many shoppers returned to physical stores. We covered this yesterday, and Dan Malaire had a really, I think, brilliant point, which is in the age of uh, disrupted supply chains, Maybe people are willing to go to a store to buy things rather than buy them online for fear that they might not receive them unless they actually get it in their hands. So I imagine a bunch of people are doing that uh, this year for the holidays with their Christmas shopping. I just did that with this $700 mixer that I'm not even using. (laughs) So um, the next one is, speaking of uh, Facebook and Christmas shopping, uh, this one for you, JT. Oculus rolls out version 45, adding mixed reality camera feature that requires an iPhone XS or above. So that was what? iPhone 10, basically, or iPhone 11, so two years ago. Uh, also includes messenger calling inside of Oculus in VR. So you can do a VR messenger call now. And a new cloud backup system for your data and and more. So, JT, do you have any thoughts on this new Oculus version 45? 
Yeah, um, this is something that Mark had uh, described during his uh, keynote a, a few months ago. Um, that ex exactly the same things that you're, you're talking about. Um, one of the cool things that he wants to bring, uh, at least to the Oculus, is some of the already existing products, in this case, Messenger. Um, the idea is that you would be able to communicate across platforms um, in his own, you know, siloed uh, metaverse or, or ecosystem. And, and so he, he did mention that you would be able to communicate uh, via Messenger calling uh, with your friends. You could do already Messenger texting um, in Oculus, um, Messenger texting as well. Uh, but the calling aspect is something that he mentioned. Uh, one thing that we saw during the presentation was the ability to do video calling. I'm not sure if that's in the updates, but that's probably something that's going to come down the road uh, as he sort of like demoed that out as well. Uh, one other thing that he really wants to do is start to bring more uh, progressive web apps into the into the ecosystem. Currently, right now, you can bring Android um, apps into Oculus. And so I'm guessing with this uh, iPhone thing, he, he's probably like hinting at that you might be able to bring some some iPhone apps into into the Oculus um, systems. But I have to look at, into that update. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, everything is in line with what he, what he mentioned during his keynote. Yeah, and he <clears throat> he took to his own personal Facebook uh, account to post exactly what I just read. And it's not out yet. But he wants everyone to know that it's coming. He says, update landing soon. That's, and then I, is Michelle happen, is Michelle with us? Because she was when we met uh, six hours ago. I ask because that's kind of her neck of the woods there at Facebook is, you know, the marketing and what such. And this is not normally how they do things with just Mark jumping on his Facebook post to announce something like this. But... I, you know, clearly yesterday, yeah, yeah yesterday um, was Cyber Monday, and he, clearly they want people to go out and buy these things for the holidays. However, uh, Apple dropping the news of their AR VR headset on Black Friday, no less, uh, I think was a genius PR move to leak that on Black Friday to send a strong signal to everyone who might be considering buying an Oculus headset to wait until next year. And then Mark's countering by announcing an update uh, today. So, sorry, who did I yeah. interrupt there? JT? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, lately Mark and Boss, uh, which is the new CTO of, of Meta, um, lately they have been posting some of these updates on their Facebook accounts, and uh, the normal person would miss them um, before the actual update gets rolled out. And so he's sort of starting to do this kind of like sneak peek for the, you know, the hardcore Oculus in Facebook um and Mark Zuckerberg fans that follow him. Um, so, like, if you really want to get into the sort of, like, the the, the pre-release kind of updates, uh, definitely follow him because he's starting to that, do that more and more often. Um, I think this is probably the, I would say, fifth time he's done that already, uh, where he leaks something on his own personal Facebook um, profile. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So next one up is Crypto.com says it plans to acquire the North American Derivatives Exchange, known as NADEX, N-A-D-E-X, and a 40% stake in a small exchange from IG Group for $216 million in cash. 
Crypto.com is also the company that just bought the naming rights for the Staples Arena in downtown Los Angeles, where uh, the Lakers and the uh, many of the LA sports teams, the Kings, and you know the basketball teams and the hockey teams play. Um, the next one's from CNBC. That Salesforce promotes Brett Taylor to vice chair of the board and co-CEO alongside Mark Benioff, effective immediately. Again, a rather uh, immediate change. And I got to say, I, and I also got to say, I think just like everybody during COVID, you get a lot of people re-evaluating their role in life and what's important and what's valuable. And I got to be honest, I, I often wonder, a lot of my friends who are <laughs> leaders of very big companies, I often wonder, what the heck are you doing? I could not do that. Once, you know, once that ship is up and sailing and, you know, you've got more money than you'll ever spend in your grandchildren's lifetimes, what exactly are you doing? Um, is there not better things to be spending your, the rest of your days on? So, um, yeah, Mark Benioff, um, you know, that's really his game. Uh, uh, Salesforce, he, he was very tight with Salesforce. Brett is brilliant and um, can, is more than qualified to, to manage that. But um, uh, Brett took to Twitter to say, thank you, Mark. I cherish your friendship and partnership, and I am honored to lead Salesforce with you as co-CEO. Thank you to our trailblazers and all of our stakeholders for this opportunity. And then Mark himself says, congrats to my great friend, Brett Taylor, Salesforce co-CEO. I could not be more excited for our amazing new partnership, leading Salesforce together. Okay. And, and then Harry McCracken, who's an old school tech journalist, uh, very likable, says uh, on Twitter, Brett Taylor just set some sort of record for promotions and new jobs. <laughs> Indeed, because he just got added to the board of uh, Twitter as as like a chairman of, of the board of Twitter as well. So he's now on the board of uh, Twitter and Salesforce. So good observation there by Harry McCracken. Okay, yeah, chairman of Twitter. So the next one is... One Inch Network, which offers the popular decentralized exchange aggregator called One Inch App, raises $175 million. Okay. Next up from Bloomberg, says they have sources that China plans to ban companies from going public on foreign markets through variable interest entities, closing a loophole used by its tech companies. China's planning to ban companies from going public on foreign stock markets through variable interest entities. Okay, yeah, well, they're going to... I won't be surprised if they ban it just completely for everybody. I, I think they already have, and this, this was the remaining loophole, and now they're sewing that up. The South China Morning Post has a related article that says Hong Kong listings for Weibo and SenseTime, which is the Twitter and facial recognition companies of China, NetEase music app seen as a test case for China's new cybersecurity rules. So it seems China does want them to list in Hong Kong, which makes sense because that's a market they control, but is also open to, you know, a little more friendly for outsiders to participate in. So you get foreign money coming in into a market that China controls. So that's kind of a, uh, a beautiful scenario uh, for China. So I, no doubt that's what they have in mind. Is they 
they don't necessarily want you going to the New York Stock Exchange. They want you to do it on Hong Kong, which where where which is precisely where I used to do my monthly Hong Kong event. It's a and a, what a lovely team of people and a gorgeous venue that is. And if you ever go to Hong Kong, you can't miss it. It's ground zero of uh, Hong Kong. So the next article: the New York Federal Reserve launches an investigation center to support the Federal Reserve's analysis of digital currencies because they themselves are not so good at the analysis of, of digital currencies. So they're building up a team, a new innovation center to support uh, the Federal Reserve in their, in their analysis and in their ambitions of potentially doing a central bank digital currency and improve cross-border payments. Next up, a blockchain audit service called CERTA-X, or CERTIX, raises $80 million, who cares? Uh, simple, spelled S-I-M-P-L without the E, you know, because we're geeks, everybody. A Bangalore-based a Bangalore-based buy-now-pay-later service raises $40 million. And Anchor, which offers cloud-based autonomous billing tools for companies, raises $15 million. Foldable smartphone shipments reached a record 2.6 million units in Q3, up 480% year-over-year, with Samsung accounting for 93% of shipments of foldable smartphones, followed by Huawei at 6%. Sydney-based Harrison.ai, which uses AI-based tools to help improve the diagnosis process in healthcare, raises $92 million. Niels Yule, who produced Scorsese's The Irishman, launches NFT Studios and plans to raise eight to ten million dollars to fund a feature film by selling ten thousand NFTs. You know, like uh, everyone's doing these days. Very notably, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher with the Stoner Cats sold ten thousand NFTs to raise the money to make the animated series Stoner Cats. And that isn't the first time Ashton Kutcher's tried to do something like that. He tried to do something quite similar in 2008 called Blah Blah Girls, which was a bit of a not-so-well-disguised ripoff of South Park, uh, but with female uh, animated characters. And he tried to launch that, or he did launch that, somewhat launched that at uh, the TechCrunch 50 event that I was executive producer of, well, you know, Back in the day. And uh, that's actually where he signed up for Twitter and became the first celebrity on Twitter that day. And, um, but, you know, now he's back at it again with another animated series, this time with his partner Mila Kunis to, with the Stoner Cats. And, and really, kudos, pioneered this cool idea of selling NFTs to finance rather than going to a Hollywood studio and you know spending a night on the sleeping couch or doing whatever it is you whatever kind of soul you got to sell these days to you know get funding out of these studios so rather than you know sleep with the devil you know why not just raise money from the fans themselves through these nfts it's kind of genius honestly and so to to highlight just how kind of brilliant that is niels jules who uh worked with scorsese on the irishman is essentially doing the same um to raise 10 million bucks to fund a feature film by selling the NFTs that are somehow related to the film to, quote-unquote, democratize antiquated funding systems, as he calls it. And he's right. You know, sleeping with uh, Harvey Weinstein is kind of an antiquated uh, funding system. So, um, 
Yeah, I would, I would much prefer to sell uh, 10,000 NFTs than my soul to the devil. So um, kudos to you, Niels Jewell. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what he's cooking there. Brazilian neobank called Nubank, spelled N-U-B-A-N-K, you know because we're geeks, everybody, lowers its IPO range from $10 to $11, or to about $10 or $11, Oh, originally from $10 down to $8, targeting $41 billion valuation. Who cares? Next one, Psy Cognito, which helps eliminate critical security risks in IT systems, raises $100 millions. Who cares? Global Foundries reports Q3 net revenue rose 56% year over year. Who cares? Next one, UK crowdfunding service called Cedars. Again, spelled S-E-E-D-R-S. Again, we're geeks, everybody. We can't fucking spell. Are you notice what's going? Can you t- see what's going on here? Cedars without the e before the r. Unbelievable. Will be acquired by U.S. investing platform Republic for a hundred million dollars. Imagine how much they would have got if they could spell the name of the company correctly. That would have. Uh, the next is from Bloomberg. They say they have sources that Indian food delivery service called Swiggy, shockingly spelled correctly, S W I G G Y is raising $600 million at a $10 billion valuation uh, Indian food delivery. Jesus Christ. $10 billion valuation, raising another six to $700 million. Next up, from Wired, a Q&A interview with the Francis Hagen on becoming a whistleblower, leaving Facebook after moving to Puerto Rico due to health and all about Facebook, and plans to run a simulated social network. There we go. Let me pin that one to the top of the room for those who want to deep dive on that one. There we go. Okay, next up is 24 Exchange, which which wants to let users trade stocks 24-7, like cryptos, raises $14 million. Vancouver-based Clue, spelled with a K, because they're geeks, y'all which uses data to help companies improve sales, raises $62 million. Spain-based job and talent, spelled as one word. Uh, a marketplace matching temps with employers raises $500 million. Make note of that. That's hot. That's really hot. A marketplace matching temps with employers. Oh, man. Uh, oh, and the money, uh, the investment was led by Shinovic out of here, out of Stockholm. But it's a Spain-based marketplace matching temps with employers. That's hot. That's a great, great space to be in. Next one, the Omicron crypto token soaring in value. Following news of the COVID-19 variant is yet another example of how cryptocurrencies create artificial scarcity. And I wonder if the Omicron crypto token... Hmm, maybe they saw the writing on the wall with the naming convention behind the COVID variants. You know, as soon as it got to Delta, they realized, oh, wait a minute, what's coming up if we get to Omicron? What if we name the token Omicron? Anyway, who knows? People Fund, a South Korean-based, well, and and apparently Koreans can spell, so that company is actually spelled correctly, People Fund. Uh, Korean-based P2P, peer-to-peer lending service, raises $63 million. And Forbes says they have sources that Zappos CEO uh, is stepping down a year after replacing Tony Shea, who tragically 
died in a in a somewhat mysterious circumstance um, a year ago. And Dubai, and by the way, just I can't say Tony's name without sharing um, what an incredibly lovely person he was. He was truly a uniquely, um, incredibly uniquely sensitive, um, deeply empathetic, um, lovely, 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 sweet, sweet person. Just a super sweet soul, and any any I think I I would I was fortunate to you know spend a, a good amount of time, but this was back in two thousand eight nine, and um, just a sweet 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 guy. Unusually, of really, I mean, it hits you immediately. You you notice immediately this dude is not normal. This dude is. He didn't see. He didn't. He seemed more like the, the valet, Parker than the CEO, in terms of his demeanor. Like he just. He was incredibly charismatic, but he was just incredibly humble and incredibly, um, down to earth, like, shockingly so. And he has a book called Delivering Happiness, right? Yeah, but I I think the, that was yeah. a ghost write, ghost written. In fact, they did. I remember them doing that book launch. They came to L.A. and did that at our office. We used our office to do the L.A. And because he didn't want to do it in a bookstore, so he did it at our office in in L.A. And he brought the happiness bus with a bunch of you know of his friends that were on this bus. He drove it out from Las Vegas because their office used to be in Las Vegas. So he drove the bus from Las Vegas to Los Angeles with some friends. The friends got off the bus. It was like an old school bus. And um, but they had fixed it all up. It was pretty cool. And um, we had this book launching event and an interview. And it was just what a what a. But you don't even think about you don't. I don't even remember the. I had the book. He signed the book for me. Whatever. I don't even remember the book because when you think of Tony, you don't think about his book. You you don't even think about Zappos. To be honest with you, um, you think about just what a, an amazing sweet personality that he was. Um, anyway. It's a real tragedy that uh, where where that all ended up. Um, Dubai-based iMile, a courier startup for Chinese vendors, raises forty million dollars, and Bitcoin mining firm Grid, spelled G-R-I-I-D, we're geeks, everybody, says it will go public via a SPAC in Q1 of next year at a valuation of around three point three billion. Microsoft shareholders approve a proposal asking Microsoft's board to publish a workplace sexual harassment report. And Box reports Q3 revenue of $224 million, up 14% year over year. Amazon App Store. Yes, Amazon has an App Store. And apps downloaded from it are broken on Android 12. Now, why would that be? Why would the now that Google and Apple are being forced to include other app stores on their devices, and this Amazon App Store has been, it says in the headline, despite the new OS, Android 12, launched a month ago, and still the Amazon App Store is not working, or the apps inside the Amazon App Store are not working even after a month after Android 12 has come out. 
I wonder. I wonder if Google might not want other app stores on their devices as the governments are now forcing them to do. Could it be that they don't want to give up billions of dollars? Could it be that they're going to wait until somebody forces them to fix this? I mean, or they don't have any uh, engineers over there at Google who can fix it. They're just short. They're just short on talent. They just don't have anyone who can fix this. They're probably going to have to wait until they can hire some people who could probably fix this, right? I mean, they're not exactly have a whole lot of engineers over there at Google. I mean, maybe two, three, four. I mean, they're, but they're probably busy building websites and stuff. So I don't, they might maybe put up a job listing, maybe wait till 2023, 2024. We'll get around to it. You see what I'm saying? We'll, we'll see what we can do. We'll call it, don't call us, we'll call you. So Microsoft's inclusion of a buy now, pay later app called Zip inside of the Edge browser is seen by some as heavy handed, adding that bloatware that may lessen the browser's privacy and security. And well, uh, it's this is obviously a response to the fact that uh, Firefox is adding um, a financial layer to the browser, just as Mark Andreessen envisioned in doing in Netflix back in the day. And it's kind of amazing that they all never got around to doing that until relatively recently, because if you're a browser, uh, you're enabling people to sell shit all day, every day. You might want to get a little piece of that if you're the app in which all of those transactions are happening. You feel me? Do you think uh, Safari and Chrome haven't thought, hey, hang on a second. Why don't we do a buy now, pay later for every website that they go to? We know all of their data. We know where they're going. We can tap into this. We got a lot of data we can leverage to build a buy now, pay later in the browser. So when they go to some e-commerce shop, hey, how about you want to pay for that later? We got your wallet right here in your browser, y'all. And that's a whole lot of shopping because it turns out most of this e-commerce shopping that you're doing, you're doing it in browsers. So why aren't the browsers offering you the buy now, pay later? It's kind of genius. So some people think it's heavy handed. Well, those some people uh, aren't the uh, investors in that browser because <laughs> uh, that's a whole lot of billions of dollars, uh, like a hundred billion. And they don't really give a shit if you think it's heavy handed. Uh, you can go somewhere else. And by the way, your browser's been a little bloated uh, for more than a decade. So adding a little buy now, pay later is, uh, you know, hardly going to, you know, with all, it's a, you'll be fine. Privacy-focused cryptocurrency startup called Ironfish, which launched its Iron Coin in April this year, raises $27 million, led by Andreessen Horowitz. And Andreessen Horowitz has tweeted saying, we're thrilled to invest in Ironfish Crypto, a decentralized blockchain network using zero cryptocurrency. Oh, sorry. Using zero knowledge proofs to create a cryptocurrency that gives users the same fundamental privacy benefits as cash. Oh, so essentially truly private. So how are governments going to like that? And AWS launches a new... Uh, ARM-based Graviton 3 processor claiming it will be 25% faster than Graviton 2 and three times faster for machine learning workloads. 
And those are your big boring headlines for today, Wednesday, December 1st. We did it, everybody. Let's get to the tweets as we do. So before we get to the tweets, anyone have one recently that they would like to share? Before I jump into these. Vinay's got one from Alibaba. China plans to ban loophole using used by tech firms for foreign IPOs. Yep, we covered that one. Thank you, Vinay. And Evan has one, uh, has a couple actually, right? About Elon Musk tells SpaceX employees that the company might go bankrupt. Is that for real, Evan? Where's Evan? Evan still, there you are. Let's get, let's get you the mic, Evan. I would love to hear about this. I've got the link right here. Let's see what this says. But Elon, you just specified that it's regarding if they were going in recession and everything. But if you can imagine that he sold 10 billion stocks, you can imagine that he will be able to put the capitalization on this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks. So I've got the article here. It says, Elon Musk tells SpaceX employees that the company might go bankrupt. In a leaked email, Elon Musk sounded the alarms surrounding the future of SpaceX after production issues arose about the engine of Starship, a SpaceX rocket that's being built in Chica, Texas, uh, actually Boca Chica, and was hyped to be the one that transported humans to the surface of Mars and the moon. Musk wrote in the email that they were there was no way to sugarcoat how bad the problem was. Last week, CNBC reported that a former SpaceX senior vice president of propulsion named Will Heltzley left Raptor production because progress wasn't being made. Musk wrote uh, in the email that the company faces, quote, a genuine risk of bankruptcy if they fail to achieve the desired flight rate which is once every two weeks, for Starship by 2020. Here's the full email Musk sent to the employees. Unf here it goes. Unfortunately, the Raptor production crisis is much worse than it seemed a few weeks ago. As we have dug into the issues following exiting prior senior management, they have unfortunately turned out to be far more severe than was reported. There's no way to sugarcoat this. I was going to take this weekend off as my first weekend off in a long time, but instead I will be on the Raptor line all night and throughout the weekend, unless you have a critical family matters and cannot physically return to Hawthorne, which is their HQ in Los Angeles, we need all hands on deck to recover from what is, quite frankly, a disaster. This con The consequences for SpaceX... Oh, wait a minute. You're telling me I gotta work on the weekend? Oh, hell no! Signature collection time. What? I was going to hang out at Starbucks all weekend. What are you talking about? Where, where are my... I am a gig... Hello, sir. Hello, Mr. Musk. I'm a gigster. Um, this is the gig economy. And me and my friends are going to do a walkout. And we're going to take a photo. And where are the journalists? Hey, everybody. Fuck the moon. Fuck Mars. We're, we want our weekend at Starbucks. Dear Elon, I already have Sorry. Dear Elon, I have five lattes to drink later today. So, YOLO! The consequences for... Here's back to his email. Uh, the consequences for SpaceX, if we can't get enough reliable Raptors made, is that we then can't fly Starship. Which means... These are the rockets, the Raptor rockets. Which means we then can't fly Starship satellite version 2. Falcon has neither the volume nor the mass to orbit needed for satellite version 2. 
satellite version 1 by itself is financially weak, whereas version 2 is strong. So, hence, therefore, uh, we need to get the Raptor rockets working to get the rocket working to get the satellites up to space to keep the business going, you feel me? Um, in addition, we are spooling up terminal production to several million units per year, which will consume massive capital. Assuming that satellite version 2 will be on orbit to handle the bandwidth demand, these terminals will be useless otherwise. When it comes down, what it comes down to is that we face genuine risk of bankruptcy if we cannot achieve a Starship flight rate of at least once every two weeks next year. Thanks, Elon. Yep. Yeah, what's fascinating, yeah, what's fascinating is just uh, the challenges. Everybody always thinks that demand is where companies fail. And what we're learning is that when you're, do, when you're sol solving, you know, big-ass problems, uh, supply and development uh, are, are more of a challenge. I will say that I doubt it very strongly that SpaceX is going to go bankrupt uh, for a variety of reasons. And I think that this is more of Elon getting the most out of his staff and getting the most out of this and, and perhaps even by finding an opportunity to, and this is, again, uh, to keep, uh, to, to signal that we need more capital. And, uh, you know, again, uh, everybody tries to think about Elon as this, incredible strategist well uh, there must be a, a a bigger play here and I'm, i'd be more I, i'd be incredibly hesitant to bet against elon here if there's no way to bet against elon you're really right and uh he specified his, his mind regarding this post like uh, on twitter and he was saying that only the paranoid survive <laughs> okay so in relation yes cheryl David Chung is in the room. Oh! You can, you can ask him to come up. David, where are you at? Can you... Data space. Is he able to uh, ask for the mic? Yeah. Can you ask for the mic, David Chung? Oh, I see him. I see him. I got him. Matter of fact, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one better. We're going to invite him as a co-host. Ladies and gentlemen, David Chang. Yeah. Who, by the way, just DM'd me in our private little back channel to let me know he just arrived not so far from me. I'm not going to reveal the location. But we had talked about this previously, so let's see. David is now a co-host. There we go. Can you hear us, David? Hello? There he is. Hi. Hey. Sorry, this is my Hi. first time using... This is my first time using uh, Twitch Spaces. Right. Fine. Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you fine. What what's cool. going what's what's cooking in your part of the world, David? You're such an interesting individual. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're, you're too kind. Um, I just landed in London. Are you still in Sweden? I am. Okay, fantastic. Um, so uh, I guess my full attention right now is building our new uh, facility in Texas. So I'm in London to do um, a little race uh, for our project. And uh, I think the space is exciting. Um, I, I don't know if you've been keeping track, but more companies uh, listed, more crypto companies went public this year than all of the past years combined. So I think for the first time, 
uh, we're really seeing a lot of appetite for, um, you know, for, for an industry that traditional uh, investors have shunned for so many years. So, so that's quite exciting. Yeah, indeed. So in a speaking of the whole space uh, decentra- uh, decentralized, the next headline is from a May from three minutes ago that Elon Musk's brother Kimball, who also, by the way, is an incredibly sweet person and um, often obviously gets overlooked, but, you know, Elon gets mentioned so much, but Kimball's quite brilliant in his own right. Um, <clears throat> Kimball launches a philanthropic DAO, a DAO. Kimball Musk has announced the launch of a giving DAO to experiment in decentralized philanthropy. Uh, so let's let's give this a little look. This sounds like it could be very interesting. Kimball Musk, Elon Musk's brother, has announced the launch of a giving DAO, which has dis- which he describes as an experiment in decentralized philanthropy. He says, "Wow, Web three has been teaching me a lot. I've decided to run an experiment." to decentralize philanthropy. The, this Giving Tuesday, I'm launching the first Giving DAO, Musk tweeted. Want to read the light paper? DM me. Constructive Twitter feedback welcome, he says. Kimball Musk owns the kitchen restaurant, founded Big Green, a nonprofit that has built outdoor classrooms across the United States. He also sits on the board of his brother's electronic vehicle company, Tesla. Web3 refers to a version of the internet built on public blockchains and is decentralized. This version also stands in stark stark contrast to Web 2, uh, the likes of which are defined by the rise of platforms like Facebook and Google and the centralization of a huge amounts of user data. Kimball's latest venture has also generated support from many crypto-friendly Twitter accounts. This sounds exciting. The true power of crypto and the blockchain to disrupt uh, philanthropy is yet to be tapped. So it's great to see you pioneering this in this regard, says one account. Another, this is not the first time Web3 and crypto worlds have tried its hand at philanthropy and charity. In October of this year, um, Doctors Without Borders received $3.5 million worth of Ethereum from an NFT sale. Quote, this game-changing crypto donation comes at a time where the COVID-19 emergency has compounded the already urgent medical needs of people around the world. And last month also saw a group of hackers donate the proceeds of ransomware attacks to charities and NGOs. The hackers from the ransomware group Darkside used the Giving Block, a Bitcoin charity donation service, to make the donations. The group reportedly did so to, quote, make the world a better place. So, Tyler. Yes, I may. What's really quite interesting about DAOs and how they operate. First of all, hey, David, great to see you on stage and have an enjoyable time in London. I got to meet Tyler in person, so I'm super excited about that. <laughs> this, this is a really interesting thing about decentralized autonomous organizations when it comes to philanthropy, because Tyler, you clearly know with much of the organizations in the United States that have donations being made worldwide, not always are the donations going to the cause. And this is the main essence of a DAO. And the most important feature is that it's that unique aspect of transparency. And that's something that you cannot hide where money is going in the philanthropic 
endeavor, if it's transparent, everything's there to be seen. And it makes it to be, it makes the proposals be very transparent what gets money and what doesn't get money. Because from my experience of working on, working on a number of fundraisers for AIDS, today being World AIDS Day, it's very important to identify with the IRS records specifically for the United States. I don't know how it is in other parts of the world, but it's very important for me when I work with NGOs and nonprofits to identify how much of the dollar being contributed is going to prepare for the cause. Being given to the cause versus being given to the marketing and the admin and the building into the cause, right? And I think this is where this experiment is going to be very unique because it can very well work out in the favor of all those endeavors where people want to give money to actually support the actual constituents that need it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the people that need it, as opposed to it going to like administration and fancy marketing and sort of cocktail parties and balls. And a lot of that isn't really, it's something that's done for donors, but it's not necessarily done for the actual constituents that you're serving. Okay. The next one, I think, Vinay, you just sent this one in about uh, reusable drone hunters can tackle hostile drones with 80% capture rate, says uh, the company who makes it. The chief executive officer says his company is keen on setting up a drone manufacturing facility in India. Uh, Mm-hmm. Tyler, it's a really, really interesting company. They've got uh, 80% success rate in catching drones. They're, Boeing is an investor in them. Toshiba is an investor in them. Some really cool tech. And uh, they've got a few customers in uh, Asia, particularly governments and stuff. Governments and other agencies. So drone hunters. Yeah. Okay. And then Lavina in the audience sends in this one about Princeton uh, team disables long-targeted gene behind spread of major cancers. The mysterious ways cancer spreads throughout the body, a process known as metastasis, is what can make it such a difficult enemy to keep at bay. But now Princeton team has disabled uh, this long-targeted gene behind the spread of major cancers. That sounds incredibly promising if they're able to stop cancers from the process of metastasis or metastasizing as it's called the mysterious way yeah so yeah uh, so what's really interesting about this uh, specific uh, gene is that it's not you know as you think about cancers there's um you don't want to turn off genes in the body <laughs> uh in general because they can have really detrimental side effects, right? Like uh, a good example is the ACE2 receptor. Uh, We wouldn't want to turn that off because it's used for a bunch of other things uh, because that would be an easy way to stop COVID, but it would have really bad downstream effects. Uh, Same as that, this gene though, the MTDH gene is actually incredibly specific to cancers and not only to one cancer, which is breast cancer, but across breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer, liver cancer. And so what they are calling this is a true silver bullet. And they're using techniques that we already have talked a lot about. Uh, But you can imagine you could start using, uh, seeing uh, a a confluence of personalized medicine around this gene and using things like CRISPR and others to turn them on and off, using epigenetic approaches to turn them on and off. It is very exciting, Tyler. And I've got to say, 
uh, what a great find, honestly. This is, uh, it's very early, but it, it, it speaks to, we've been talking about personalizing genome, genome-driven medicine, but we haven't really seen that as much as we would have liked. Uh, this is what we would truly call gene therapy, and it would be a huge move forward. Okay. Next up, uh, Evan found one about a new floating city to be built in South Korea as part of a UN-backed plan. And I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account so that you can see it. And it's done by BIG, or BIG, which is uh, out of Denmark, uh, uh, Bjark Ingels Group, who's kind of the world's biggest star architect at the moment. And the ambitious concept was first unveiled in 2019, made up of a collection of hexagonal platforms. The city is devised to withstand natural disasters like flood tsunamis and hurricanes. And around 40% of the world's population lives within 100 kilometers of the coast. As sea levels continue to rise, coastal cities are facing unique demographic, environmental, and economic, social, and spatial challenges. Right. We're going to need floating cities off the coast of our sinking cities. The floating city is envisioned to accommodate approximately 10,000 inhabitants at first, but with more modular platforms can be added over time, as well as being flood-proof, the city will produce its own food, energy, and water. Oh, wow! What a great idea! Producing your own food, energy, and water? What are these guys thinking? That's kind of crazy. Uh, with fully integrated zero-waste closed-loop systems. Bjork Ingels said about the project, uh, the additive architecture can grow, transform, and adapt organically over time, evolving from a neighborhood of 300 residents to a city of 10,000, with the possibility of scaling indefinitely, you know, 50 billion, uh, to provide thriving nautical communities for people who care about each other and the planet. Well, that counts me out. I don't care about nobody. So, the the founder also added that 9 out of 10 of the world's largest cities will be exposed to rising sea levels by 2050. The sea is our fate. It may also be our future. There you go. Seasteading, here it comes. You got the world's biggest uh, architect firm already, already on the case in Korea. Thank you. Danish have one to share. What's that? Danish have one to share. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, new, really promising uh, anecdotal data from Israel on the Omicron variant. Uh, uh, Tyler, you want me to go for it? Go for it. So, uh, interestingly, as many people have been talking about, this Omicron variant is a very confusing one uh, for a variety of reasons. The biggest one being, you know, it could just as easily be the scariest thing we're going to see or the best thing we're going to see. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think people have talked about it, but just want to make sure that everybody's level set. If the variant is less severe and has less uh, uh, percentage of long COVID, uh, so less severe in terms of hospitalizations and deaths and less incidence of long COVID, and it is more transmissible than Delta, then it could actually make Delta less, uh, less of an issue. Right, because it would outcompete Delta, and it would be that would be sort of the blissful side of things. The scary side of things are if it has more hospitalizations, more deaths, and more uh, incidences of long COVID with its higher transmissibility, it would be super scary. 
Um, and uh, it would lead to us essentially being, I don't want to say at square one, but considering the Moderna CEO is saying, hey, I don't know if the vaccines are going to be that effective against this one. And some of the early Israel data on Pfizer is good, but uh, we're not going to go down that road. I'm, I don't absolutely, I want to see more data on that. But I was going to say that it seems like this is, with the 32 mutations that we know of, with this variant, it has a high risk of escaping the vaccines, which means we would legitimately be at square one, which is a bad situation. So those are the two sort of worlds that we live in. What's exciting is some of the anecdotal data has been very promising. One of the anecdotal data is around the fact that South African uh, people that have contracted the Omicron variant while being young with immune, good immune systems, so we have to take all of that into account, have not had, we have yet to have one death from Omicron to date, even though South Africa is pretty prevalent now. Uh, so, you know, we know that it's not in that population. Again, South Africans look very different than Americans and the rest of the OECD do. Uh, uh, since they are younger, usually healthier, and so on. So, you know, we have to take that into account, but it's good data. But the Wall Street Journal just put something out today, which was promising anecdotal data from Israel, where there were these two physicians, one of whom was 70 years old. I just want to be clear about that. That is right smack dab in the, uh, is the, in the you know, uh, COVID is dangerous for you age group, okay? 70-year-old um, physician, no problems. Did pretty well with it, uh, was previously vaccinated, which is important. But what's interesting is also any, uh, you know, with good quarantine, with good masking, and with previously vaccinated, we don't know if actually the vaccine was the reason. Obviously, it's a confounding factor. But what's in incredibly exciting in some ways is that there's now anecdotal data, both from South Africa, from other countries. Uh, we have yet to know of a confirmed Omicron death around the world, even though this has been around every, essentially every country uh, that either knows today or doesn't know today, is probably it's in the U.S. already. We know that there's a very high likelihood, but yet no one has been sequenced for Omicron and passed away. And that is quite encouraging because if Omicron uh, continues at this transmissibility, guys, Delta is the bad, bad person that we know. It's the devil we know. And so... You know, the fact that Omicron could outcompete Delta and potentially be less severe is incredibly encouraging. We still need more data, especially around long COVID, since that leads to li potentially lifelong uh, disability. We want to be careful to be too excited about it. But I can tell you that within physician circles and within the medical academic circles, I'm hearing a lot of excitement that we're finally seeing uh, a more transmissible version of COVID that is also potentially less severe and has less hospitalizations and deaths. Let's hope so. So, um, what else do we got? We have one from Katarina that a silicon device that can change skin tissue into blood vessels and nerve cells has advanced from prototype to standardized fabrication, meaning it can now be used in a consistent, re re reproducible way. Innovative silicon nanochip can reprogram biological tissue in living body. Tweeting now, a silicon device that can change skin tissue into blood vessels and nerve cells has advanced from prototype to standard fabrication. That sounds wild. The next one, I wonder if David's still with us on stage. This was from Reuters. They say they have an exclusive that China is protesting Indonesia's uh, oil and gas drilling off the coast of Indonesia, claiming 
that they that's the South China Sea and that belongs to China. China told Indonesia to stop drilling for oil and natural gas in a maritime territory that both countries regard as their own. Uh, although it's you know right off the coast of Indonesia and you know thousands of kilometers away from China, um, maybe not thousands, but definitely hundreds, and maybe a thousand. That's quite far from Indonesia to China, by the way. Um, Nine dotted lines, as it's called. Yes. So this is this is kind of unprecedented. It's in it, the next paragraph says. The unprecedented demand, which has not previously been reported, elevated tensions over natural resources between the two countries in a volatile area of global strategic and economic importance. One letter from Chinese diplomats to Indonesia's foreign minister clearly told Indonesia to halt drilling at a temporary offshore rig because it was taking place in Chinese territory. This is like south of Thailand, everybody. This is like... Um, you, you have several countries between... Indonesia and China, geographically speaking. So how is China trying to claim this? It's a the rest of the world doesn't recognize China's claims to this, and this is what this this is precisely these kinds of issues that are kind of leading to the naval military drills in the South China Sea. So the article says. Uh, Quote, our reply was very firm that we are not going to stop the drilling because it's our sovereign right, says, says uh, Indonesia. A spokesperson for Indonesia's foreign ministry said, any diplomatic communication between states is private in nature and, is, and its content cannot be shared. He declined to comment further, meaning he's not going to reveal the full communication. China's embassy in Indonesia, capital Jakarta, did not respond to a request for comment. Three other people who said they were briefed on the matter, confirmed the existence of the letter. Two of those people said China made repeated demands that Indonesia stop drilling. Southeast Asia's biggest nation says the south southern end of the South China Sea is its exclusive economic zone under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea and named the area as the North Naturna Sea in 2017. China objected to the name change and insists the waterway is within its expansive territorial claim in the South China Sea that is marked with a U-shaped nine-dash line, as David correctly said, uh, a boundary found to have no legal basis by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague in 2016. Quote, it, ha it was a bit threatening because it was the first effort of China's diplomats to push their nine-dash line agenda against our rights under the law of the sea, they said. China is Indonesia's biggest trade partner and second largest source of investment, making it a key part of Indonesia's ambition to become a top-tier economy. Indonesia's leaders kept quiet about the matter in order to avoid conflict or a diplomatic spat with China. And Farhan, the minister, said that China is, in a separate letter, also protested against the predominantly land-based Garuda Shield military exercises in August, which took place during... A standoff. The exercises involving 4,500 troops from the United States and Indonesia in Indonesia have been a regular event since 2009. You know, uh, like 13 years now. This was China's first protest against them. Quote in their formal letter, the Chinese government was expressing their concern about the security stability in the area. Okay. It's it's this. It's not exactly uh, down the street. 
from you know Indonesia to China. It's it's you know that you got to go past Vietnam and the Philippines and Borneo and Thailand. <laughs> I mean, it's wow. And geez, it's that's a hike to get down there. Todd, I can provide a little context. Please do, David. <laughs> we love context. we we absolutely love your. Uh, you and your brilliant ability to do exactly that. Please help us. You're too kind. So, I still remember growing up in school. Um, I was, you know, along with my peers. We were forced to memorize what is the southernmost sovereignty of China, right? So, both the Republic of China in Taiwan and the PRC in Beijing actually make these claims. So, I think、um, the Taiwanese call it. The nine, da-、uh, sorry, the eleven dashed lines, and then PRC calls it the nine dashed lines.、Um, effectively, same territory, but、um, different demarcation. So, the historical context is China for you know thousands of years、uh, was really the center of of East Asia, right? So most countries、um, historically, including Japan, Korea, Vietnam, all paid.、Um, China,、um, and so during that time,、um, I mean, obviously, this relationship, in 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 all fairness, was more of a form of diplomacy than really being subordinate powers to China.、Right? I and mean, obviously, there were so Korea was obviously more subordinate to China historically, but the likes of Japan and Vietnam, for the most part, operated fairly autonomously. But、um, in terms of diplomatic relations, they sort of cut out to China. But that was just sort of diplomacy of the day.、Um, and then after、uh, after the French invasion of, of Vietnam and colonization of Vietnam, effectively,、um, China relinquished some of these rights. But as to the actual islands、um, in the South China Sea, I think that part was rather unclear. And then during World War Two, when Japan started invading effectively all of Asia,、um, and when they finally surrendered to China, that, those were those parcels of land that make up、uh, the region within the Nine Dash Lines were actually surrendered to、uh, to 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 the Chinese government at the time, which was actually the Republic of China that ended up going to Taiwan. That's why both governments claim that、uh, that region.、Um, so the argument, I guess, also is Japan didn't necessarily have the right to surrender those、uh, territorial claims to China、um, because I mean they 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 invaded them, but I don't. It's hard to say whether or not they were the legitimate powers there, and whether or not that treaty between China and Japan.、Uh, Could be justified or validated, but、right? but I'm just trying to provide context on why China makes those claims,、yeah. and、um, they're <laughs> it, it, it's sort of hardwired into every every young schoolboy and girl、mm. that、uh, those are their territorial claims.、Um, but it's it's come to this point where within China the the whole、um, sort of This extreme form of patriotism has become so toxic that if you even make、um, advertising campaigns with,、uh, with 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 a Chinese map on there, you have to draw both Taiwan and the Nine Dash Lines and all those islands into the map, or you could get reported for being unpatriotic. Right?、Okay. It's, it's, it's silly nonsense now.、Okay. Um, 
Actually, uh, and then actually I wanted to ask if you guys had the chance to cover something that I think is quite big news, okay. but perhaps not treated as such in Western media. Um, and, and all of this came out in the past 48 to 72 hours. Okay. Um, one of which I think was released by the Wall Street Journal, which is um, the British released uh, recordings and documents suggesting she had a very front row seat in everything that's been happening in Xinjiang. I don't know if you, you discussed that. Yeah, um, uh, I have the article here, though. It says, leaked documents detail Xi Jinping's extensive role in Xinjiang, as you say, and then BBC also reporting leaked papers link top Chinese leaders to Uyghur crackdown, uh, and Brookings Institute has a, an article on that, but you want, you want to read a little yeah, bit? Yeah, well, before I go into that, and then the other one, uh, maybe everyone can Google, is the arrest of Alvin Chow. Um, I'm, I'm fairly sure this name is probably very foreign to most non-Chinese. Um, Chow is C-H-A-U. Alvin Chow is the largest uh, junket operator in Macau. Um, and this actually has an enormous bearing on the entire crypto market. And, and when I say that, I mean globally. Um, for the first time, we're seeing an immense reverse traffic. I mean, as you know, as China sort of cracks down harder and harder, we see a, a desire for people to take their money out of China. But... <laughs> Right before Alvin's arrest, about 72 hours ago, um, and, and even though now, we see massive demand for people to dump their crypto back into Chinese yuan onshore. And I think this comes um, as part of the new uh, series of measures that Beijing will implement to further crack down on both crypto and capital flight. Right, So... Um, the, the role of Alvin in in sort of the whole Macanese scheme and what that represents in terms of money movement in China is he owns the largest underground banking organization in China. So for those who um, who were keen on moving money around, <laughs> you didn't even need a bank account anymore. Um, all you needed was an account with Alvin Chow's company, Sun City, which is listed in Hong Kong. And you can deposit money in the Sun City account in mainland China and then withdraw from it in almost any other Asian country that they operate in, which is most of them. Right? So you can easily move money from China to, say, uh, I don't know, Thailand or Vietnam through the Sun City network. Um, and he was arrested as of three days ago. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, Tyler, okay. since David is here, um, there are many news on WeChat recently, right? Do you want him to touch on that as well? Which one about WeChat? WeChat, uh, Weixing, uh, that, uh, the, that the apps uh, that you go on, Tencent needs approval from government, right, before the apps go online. And also uh, the companies are actually asking uh, the, the people not to use WeChat anymore because of the surveillance. Oh, yeah. So state-backed companies... Are, they're telling their team members not to use WeChat uh, for data security reasons. And, and also, yeah, that WeChat now needs to, or Tencent rather, the parent company, the, the government says we want to approve all of your app updates before they go live in the app stores. Um, seems like they're 
abundantly cautious about data on WeChat potentially getting out? Is that is that are we reading that correctly? Um, again, I still think um, data second, money first. So the newest thing on WeChat that I think is more significant is they're going to ban transfers; only payments are allowed. Uh-huh. So, meaning you can only use WeChat to buy actual items. You can't use it to transfer money to another user. Got it. Makes sense. Okay. And no more about Chinese New Year then. Yeah, that will have to take second. Wait, I. Sorry, this. I'd like to ask Didi. Didi, the list from the New York market. Oh yeah. So China also is said to Didi to make plans. Uh, concrete plans and a schedule to de- delist itself from the New York Stock Exchange and ostensibly move over with, with some kind of backup plan to move over to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. But I mean, it, it was very clear. They said they want it was it was the Wall Street Journal article said, actually, I think it was Bloomberg, that um, they want to do it for the for fear of potential uh, sensitive data leaks. And and I assume that means uh, based on a, a, a friend from Beijing who said that the government's worried about audio video recordings from DD rides um, potentially finding their way, um, you know, some, that some of the conversations in the back seats of DDs might be of national security interest, and they don't want to risk those getting out in the wild. Um, so, anyway, the the article that you just sent in, it's a brand new one from the BBC, the leaked papers link top Chinese leaders to Uyghur crackdown. It says a newly published cache of documents directly links Chinese leaders, including President Xi Jinping, to the state's crackdown on Uyghur Muslims. The documents include speeches which analysts say prove senior government leaders called for measures that led to mass internment and forced labor. China has consistently denied that it is committing genocide against Uyghurs. Some of the documents were the subject of an earlier report, but the latest leak has previously un, uh, has previously unseen information. They were passed to the Uyghur Tribunal, an independent people's tribunal in the UK in September, but have not previously been published in full. The tribunal asked three academics who specialize in the field to authenticate the documents. The documents branded the Uyghur papers after the region and Uh, which is home to most of the Chinese Uyghurs, reveal how Chinese Communist Party leaders, including Mr. Xi and Premier Li Keqiang, can you pronounce Premier Li's last name? Li Keqiang. Keqiang, uh, made statements which directly led to the policies affecting the Uyghurs and other Muslims. These include forced internments, mass sterilizations, forced assimilations, re-education, and coercion of detained Uyghurs to work in factories. The New York Times had reported on an ident- identical set of documents that were leaked to them in 2019, but not all were made available to the public. Okay, so well, there was another semi-related article yesterday that we read that one major province ordered 3,000 cameras with the expressed purpose of using facial recognition to track journalists and, and international students. What I thought was more interesting was... Uh, it was only going to cost them $750,000, and it would be installed in less than two months. And I, I, I found that to be equally as impressive. Um, they, they definitely get things done very quickly and very affordably. 
Um, so, other interesting... Tw- I have like 10 more tweets to get through here and some good ones as well. The first one I have is from Sharok via Reuters that Amazon executive says Omicron's impact on holiday spending is uncertain. A senior Amazon executive said it remains too early to predict how the Omicron coronavirus variant will impact consumer spending during the holiday season. And uh, Sharok also sends in this one from The Guardian that more... Oh, no. Hey, ah, no. Ah, this is a chance to play our favorite show. Welcome, everybody, once again to Tech News Jeopardy. Are you ready? Where's Messi? Get ready, Messi. Hold on. Let me... Let, we got to get the sound up. I got to pump up the volume on this one, everybody, so everyone can hear. Here we go. Messi, I just invited you. What percentage of the world population has never used the internet okay. according now to I'm the here. UN? Now I'm here. <laughs> Let's see my luck. I'll repeat the question. According to the United Nations, what percent of the world's population has never used the internet? 50%. Ah, uh, sorry. Obviously, the right answer is 31% if Messi's guessing 30. 36%. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Evan wins it. The answer is 37%. 2.9 billion people. Wow, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't work in telecom for 35 years, so yeah. yeah. So Evan's, Evan's on top of this. So the next one is from Pam and the audience. A breakthrough treatment that could eradicate HIV to begin human trials. Human trials for the HIV cure might begin as early as next summer, according to British drug giant Glasgow Smith Klein. The end of HIV. That would be amazing. Uh, global jet fuel demand under pressure from Omicron. And people canceling flights. And Tomoko sends in a really interesting one from Japan. Synthetic tissue can repair hearts, muscles, and vocal cords. Scientists from McGill University developed new biomaterial for wound repair, and the technology is moving forward. Uh, Synthetic tissue that can repair hearts, muscles, and vocal cords. And Dr. Fran sends in this one from the New York Times. It's an opinion piece titled, China is winning the war on big data. No doubt, because they understand it. Uh, it's hard to win a war when you don't understand what data is, uh, and China does. Carl, oh, might I just chime in really quickly? I actually had a really interesting discussion um, with someone rather senior um, in, in the Chinese government on this about three days ago. Um, we were discussing a project. Um, what he said to me was actually quite enlightening. He said there's no country in the world where governments have basically um, complete free will, or free reign, sorry, to harvest data from its people. And there's also no country where the people are so complied, so, so, so um, willing to just give up all the data, right? And I think I've given you this example before. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, Baidu, the largest Chinese search engine, they had a food delivery platform not unlike, uh, I guess, the American equivalent of 
DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever, right? Um, and the, the, the way they analyzed and collected data was, was quite incredible. I mean, um, I mean, let's not get into the morality of it, but just uh, sort of the tech element of it. So they would assess based on where you live, um, uh, how wealthy you were, right? And then they would attest that by where you spend most of your nights, and that you know assumes where you live. And then they could actually get down to sixty percent accuracy, make and model of your car based on your acceleration, how often you went to uh, certain dealerships to get your car serviced, etc. Um, so. All of that is to say, going back to you know, what we talked about with big data and DD, um, what I guess Beijing has realized is you have to re remember a, a, a major part of Beijing's objective is to not only provide propaganda for people outside of China, but for those inside China. In fact, I would argue that the propaganda for domestic consumption is even more important to the regime. So having said that, they actually see, based on the person I talked to, um, all of this data leak, the biggest threat is how Western governments can finally understand, I guess, the psyche or the, the thinking or the mentality of, of Chinese masses and then actually pinpoint uh, foreign propaganda towards, uh, towards Chinese consumption. Um, and then sort of rewrite the rhetoric there. Um, and then, you know, not least of which is things that I guess uh, China and the rest of the war, the rest of the world are playing a tug of war with, right? For example, this latest uh, tennis tennis star who has, um, you know, somewhat been, been silenced. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been so bad that, um, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know about today, but for the first week when this news broke, when you searched even tennis on 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 your search engine, everything would go blank. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, um, I mean, some of the things that happen uh, with Chinese AI is just fascinating, right? So, for example, um, I think this was the 2008, uh, no, 2012. The 2012 Bay, uh, London Olympics, the first Chinese gold medalist, um, everyone can go look this up, the first Chinese person to win a gold medal is this, um, is this woman who won it in something that was totally unexpected. But no searches of her could turn up because her Chinese name, if you, um, if you get a, the, the sounding of it, the pinging of it, is exactly the same pinging as the alleged mistress of Xi Jinping. I saw that with the, um, the tennis player where the World Tennis Association said they wouldn't permit any other competitions until, um, until she was seen um, because I guess she disappeared and no one had heard from her so she had this very strange stilted appearance at a, uh, at a tennis competition so the World Tennis Association wouldn't pull out. Uh, it was, I thought it was, it was surprising, honestly. Okay, so let's jump, there's a bunch of more headlines to jump into here. Uh, Donish, you just shared one about Australia, from Wall Street Journal, Australia investigates whether Omicron variant spread on a flight. 
and solving that puzzle would go some way to understand how contagious the strain is compared with others, obviously. And the, the only thing to add, Tyler, there is I think there's going to be a little bit of a reckoning around how the global community has penalized <laughs> South Africa. They were talking a little bit about this in the same article around how now we there's some early data showing that while it was for a sequence in South Africa, there might be actual uh, signs that it was actually dis- that it, it started in other countries. And I, I think uh, a lot of people around the world are saying, should we really be penalizing countries for uh, for finding and having really good uh, systems <laughs> for sequencing? I mean, South Africa is one of the best in that vein, and I, I think it's a fascinating sort of question to ask, because right now the South African government is probably kicking itself for alerting the WHO, which is not what we want. Well, that is not the incentive you want to set up. Here's my thought on that. Um, from the Thai perspective, where <clears throat> in the Thai process has always been, if any area, and they do it on a city-by-city basis, because the planet generally exists along these concepts of cities. You maybe have heard of these. Maybe you live in one. And it turns out if your city has a uh, too much COVID, and you might find that out if too many people go to the local hospital in that city and test positive for COVID, that they not let people in or out of that city. As inconvenient as that might seem, that uh, can go a very long way to stopping it. And if a city were to stop the spread of COVID out, and maybe it gets to another city, and that other city also stops it, then it's no longer a stigmatizing issue for a country. If, For example, had uh, South Africa, the country, managed to stop the spread in South Africa and actually controlled it, where it's in Johannesburg and, and Cape Town exclusively, and they're not letting anyone in, in or out of those areas, well, then the rest of the world could sigh a breath of relief and applaud South Africa as a kick-ass mofos that they are, that they managed to stop this thing from becoming a global catastrophe. And it All would, right, Tyler. It so would, so it here's the pushback. It, it wouldn't be a stig. It wouldn't be like a negative. We wouldn't be penalizing them. Who God knows we could do a crowdfunding and and collectively congratulate them with a billion dollars for for saving our assets. Yeah. Can, can I, I weigh in on this? Please do. Can, Don, if you mind if we let John jump in? Absolutely. Go ahead, John. Yeah, yeah so, so what Bojo announced, I'm getting an echo. Yeah, that's the, that's, I don't know why that happened today in Clubhouse, but uh, hopefully it doesn't happen tomorrow. Um, it, you have to move to, um, you have to move to Twitter to not have the echo. I know there's a mic. He's getting a macro, a micro ten millisecond slapback. It should ha- should have absolutely nothing to do with the multi-stream. We're not. They're separate devices. They're. It's. I don't know. It really makes no sense to me why it's happening. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try, try to keep it brief. brief. Okay. Bojo announced a quarantine okay. for all incoming travelers. Biden administration is announcing. Testing before and after each flight arriving in the U.S. We should have been doing that all along. Amen. Exactly. Um, One thing I would say also... Oh, sorry. I thought you were done. Sorry. 
Messi, I uh, wanted to uh, update one thing on what John is saying, and I would love to hear your thoughts, obviously. Uh, I was going to say that, you know, one thing that is interesting, Tyler, to push back at what you said, is I agree 100% if it's equal. But right now, we have not stopped flights from Israel. We've not stopped fl- flights from Korea. We've not stopped flights from Belgium. We've not stopped flights flights from any other country, Japan. Uh, you know, we have not stopped flights anywhere else except for Southern Africa. And I have to say, it is ridiculous. <laughs> so the, the point is, you know, I know that the... the case can we stop flights from Florida? Can we stop... <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 the point just you know, remains the same, which is, you know, I think that uh, while I agree with you, Tyler, the, the, the key here is to not look... You know, and I think what John said was really, really important, which is at the end of the day, well, what they should be doing and they have started doing, which we should have been doing this whole time, is actually not just testing once uh, and telling them 72 hours before having a negative COVID test, but testing twice, which is what Japan is now starting to do, which I'm really excited about. And I think here, we've talked about it many times, Tyler, the key here is This is a global pandemic. I can tell you right now, you might not want to hear this, and I know a lot of people don't want to hear this, but if you live in a developed country that has any people coming in from Israel, Belgium, other places, right now, COVID, Omicron is probably in your country right now. I'm sure it's in the U.S. I'm absolutely sure of it. And so stopping this is not going to stop uh, it from coming in, it might delay the case counts going up faster. But I really think that testing was supposed to be the right way to go about it. I don't think closing borders is the right approach, in my opinion, at least. If, if I can, I, the, the one thing I think that is the oh, sorry, John, we need both testing and a delay. Uh, well, I think the, the the biggest problem now is I think going to be that um, it's just going to inhibit people from wanting to test populations or release the data. I mean, that's what we saw early on in Florida, is that if you don't want to be stigmatized and you don't want your economy adversely impacted, you're actually better off not testing, and that's not great. Yeah, and the delay, there's actually a delay. By the time you detect it, it's already been spreading for about a week or two, at least. So to implement these kind of very draconian measures of shutting everything down doesn't improve compliance or willingness to actually go and get tested because then people feel like they themselves and their country are being punished. And so you, you get more, more, uh, more difficult situations as a result. I just also wanted to add that, uh, in fact, this morning there was a lot of report Omicron was actually in Netherlands. Now from testing, they're finding out before even South Africa actually reported it. And of course, we know that there is no travel restriction put on Netherlands. But they are finding out now that um, after South Africa sequenced it, um, the, the, the discovery is 
that virus has been discovered at least, I think, from five people before even South Africans reported it. So it's just ridiculous how we are acting and how we are always blaming Africa for, for everything else that that really globally has been affecting everybody. And and even to just to stop and stop hoarding it, uh, hoarding the, the vaccination is also the point I want to go back because we're going to have this COVID with us for a very long time if we don't share equitably with everyone, not just Africa, but everyone in the world. Otherwise, this virus is going to just keep on mutating and then circulating and then just we keep on going back and forth through the cycle so it's it's very sad to even see even in the u.s that some vaccinations are expiring and that they are not even giving it and even the sad part of it there were some millions being donated in africa when they were just only two weeks shelf life left and knowing that how cold freeze that we need to put them in in to have the vaccination and distribution how, how ridiculous is that how how is it going to be distributed and put it in people's arms uh, if there's only two weeks shelf life left um it's just a bit sad there's anyway really, uh, i just wanted to yeah, add that there's a related issue messy which is it's not only just about hoarding them in the u.s it's about uh, generating them um, in a distributed network globally, so you don't you're not dependent on you know the U.S. or any country to you know in the in the creation of them. We need distribution centers globally. I mean, it, if you really want to deal with a global pandemic, it doesn't make sense to have all the production in limited uh, geographies. A very small fact I would add is 80% of the vaccinated population is actually in 10 developed countries, believe it or not. That's the data that's crazy to me. And and we've also wasted about 25% of the vaccines by letting them spoil. But when we say that a vaccine is spoiled, how much of the actual solution in the vial has actually um deteriorated, that's also an open question. So it's not necessarily the case that when we throw out the vaccines that have quote-unquote expired, that they're actually useless. So there's a lot of missed opportunities. If 25% of vaccines have been wasted, and we could still probably get some efficacy out of partially expired vaccines, that would most certainly help or go uh, some way in helping the global pandemic. Okay. Uh, expired vaccine. Uh, I'm happy to send some to you. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, I think I think expecting the rest of the world to take expired vaccine is probably not the right answer either, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, yeah but sure. to what extent is it expired is an open question, and we're actually looking at that in our lab to see how much of the vaccine actually deteriorates and could it actually be used because if we could for example let's say half of the 25 percent that's wasted if we could have used that to then even at quarter efficacy so you double up the dose or you find some way of of, of being able to extract that or still use it that's still something that would be useful um i think uh in a, in a situation that we're in right now where supplies are limited and the logistics of shipping things around is also somewhat limited. Okay.
Okay. <clears throat> yeah, but when we have that much of a limited supply, we shouldn't wait until it's close to being expired, or even if you say that it has some extra shelf life, we need to give it a bit of a time margin so that it can be distributed logistics-wise uh, efficiently. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So, may I come in shortly, please? Yeah, we're, we got to get off the COVID chat because that can go on all night. So we got to get to Carl. You have uh, an interesting one you wanted to share? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what my signal's like. It keeps uh, tittering and breaking up a little bit. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is um, it's an opinion piece of the Washington Post, to be fair, but it's a really important opinion piece. It's one that we don't cover very often. It's the shadow war in space is heating up fast. Um, and this is a slightly bloated summary of a conversation that's happened um, between the writer Josh Rogan for the Washington Post and um, a general, was this, uh, General David Thompson from the Space Force in the U.S. And he's basically talking about um, that the increasing threats and expanding threats of um, uh, counter space terrorism, as it were. And we've heard a little bit about this recently because we had the whole Russia thing where Russia was testing missiles. Um, they blew up one of their own satellites. They created a debris cloud. The ISS had to sort of respond. Um, it was inflated a little bit in the press. It was sort of made a, a bigger deal than that particular instance was. And there was a very American-centric sort of how the hell dare Russia do this? Don't they know how dangerous it is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The interesting thing about this article, um, I don't know if you're able to pin it, Tyler, is that it's talking about the fact that there are um, non-fatal reversible attacks, that there is this secret not talked about war going on between um, satellite operators, between the countries, where they're actually using non-kinetic which is normally the way that you would actually do a, um, a damaging attack on, a, on an enemy satellite. But they're using lasers and radio frequency jammers and cyber attacks and that kind of thing. Um, it's an interesting article. Um, it's an interesting thing to talk about, and it's something that we should talk about more often um, for something for a reason why I'll stay in a moment. It is a little bit, it, it's another case of sort of the U.S. wagging their finger a little bit at the rest of the world and saying, well, you know, look at them over there, they're doing this dangerous thing, when in fact it's actually something that every nation does, especially if um, if you have foreign satellites that are in uh, geosynchronous orbit where they're passing over your territories, you'll quite often use methodologies to sort of... Um, nullify their abilities to observe because every you know israel china russia the u.s um across europe everybody's got sort of downward facing satellites and and some of them are um clearly labeled as like national security satellites and a lot of them are like well we just want to look at the oceans you know we're just trying to keep an eye on on global warming and that kind of thing but really a lot of them are gathering data so it's a very normal thing to sort of use these um these uh cyber tactics on foreign satellites to sort of reduce their efficacy while they're traveling over your territory. But there is a definite increase of tensions in this space. And it's it's a really dangerous thing because um, unlike, you know, the, the, for instance, it was talking in the article a few years ago with um, Russia sort of approaching a U.S. satellite. And it was actually a weapons test. It was a, the Russian satellite was a kinetic satellite um, where they, the, the Russian satellite released a, a package and then actually practiced 
is shooting it in space with a kinetic um, projectile, but not before it moved incredibly close to the US satellite. So it's this posturing, it's sort of this back and forth posturing and muscle flexing and everything else. The problem with it is it's doing it in a space where um, there's actually not a, roo- a lot of room for um, for like the, uh, I can't remember the word that that, that 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 I used in the tweet, but that like you've got to be at escalation. That's it. There's there's a very small amount of of room for escalation here. Um, that is, it can very quickly get very, very, very bad. The risks are really, really, really friggin' high. You know, not just from if you go all out war and you take out um, communication satellites and that kind of thing, and you take down the ability to communicate, like things like GPS and whatnot, but also you've got the more fantastical stuff like Kessler syndrome. Everybody's seen the film Gravity, where you have that unstoppable wave of debris and whatnot. And we could really, really, really quickly end up in basically being thrown back to the dark ages through this escalation and we have this approach to nuclear warheads where everybody agrees that actually we need to be really careful that we never hit that point where anybody's thinking about using them because when we do that's it game over everybody loses and and this is the approach that needs to be taken with how we're operating in space how we're doing things in space it doesn't really help with the u.s sort of posturing and saying well everybody else is bad and we're doing it the u.s has been doing this for years the u.s has been testing space working for years it's been creating uh, debris clouds for years it was just doing it before and now you've got russia and china who are sort of catching up um and and it, it, it needs to be like a unified agreement that we need to just chill out and we need to calm down because there's zero room for escalation in this gotcha thank you for that there's carefully, carefully designed, designed paradigm paradigm paradigm. <laughs> I, yeah. i'm just uh, how maneuverable are things like satellites? Because it's becoming populated more now with private companies. So, I mean, there's going to be, and I, you know, the lawyer part of me is always like, oh my God, who's going to be liable and how will they determine that? Because <laughs> it's all international waters, essentially. So, um, but, um, but how maneuverable are, are satellites? Like, is this going to be something where, you know, private companies can operate on behalf of countries or private companies are going to be threatened on behalf of other companies? And, and what about like suborbital flight and things like that? I mean, are these things that are going to be impacted? Um, it's it's incredibly easy. Sorry, it's incredibly easy to move. Once you, once you get into orbit, it's incredibly easy to maneuver. Um, I mean, one thing is that the, the, the range that you're talking about are huge, as in, you know, if, you, if you, you're talking about hundreds of kilometers differences of, of heights of orbit, um, so that's one thing. But if if you don't have to worry about getting back, obviously you need some sort of fuel. But if you're only if you if if you're using um, an ASAT, which is the the name for a um, space-based weaponry, then it's it's sing if it's a single-use one, if you don't have to worry about getting back to where you were, yeah, it's really really easy. It's incredibly easy to move yourself into the orbit of another satellite, and and, and easy to hide yourself as well. Okay, we got Messi's going to open up a room here shortly for the Tech News Africa room. So I want to run through some tweets real fast and give other people who haven't had a chance to speak to speak. Here, in no particular order, Thomas found this one just now that I'm tweeting to the Tech News Twitter account, which for those who are new to Tech News, uh, if you click on the Tech News uh, Twitter account, uh, you know, on stage then and follow that you will see all of these articles that we're sharing with each other and you can share articles too just include t-n-a-t-w as part of your tweet and then that's how we can talk about it here uh and so this one's from thomas it says scientists discover a way to read the minds of jellyfish 
and it's phenomenal. That's the headline uh, from Science Alert. And just to read a little bit of it, it says, even though jellyfish don't have brains, scientists have figured out a way to read their minds in a manner of speaking. With a clever bit of genetic tinkering, we can now watch how neurons in a tiny species of see-through jellyfish work together to make complex autonomous movements like grabbing and eating prey. Uh, the one particular jellyfish uh, is a perfect model to study for this sort of behavior because this specific species of jellyfish is so tiny, only about a centimeter in diameter, its entire nervous system can easily fit under a microscope. Its genome is also quite simple, and its transparent body only contains about 10,000 neurons, which makes it easier to track neural messages. When researchers genetically modified the jellyfish so that their neurons glowed when activated, they found an unanticipated degree of structured neural organization. Jellyfish nervous systems developed more than 500 million years ago and have changed very little since. Compared to the brains of animals today, the neurons in these living fossils are arranged in a much more simple way. There is no centralized system coordinating all of the creature's movements, meaning a brain, so how does it get anything done? The new research suggests that the jellyfish neurons are laid out in an umbrella-like network which closely mirrors its body. These neurons are then further divided into slices, almost like a pizza. Each tentacle on the edge of the jellyfish's bell is connected to one of these slices, so when the jellyfish's arms de detect a captured prey, like brine shrimp, the neurons in this one slice are activated in a specific sequence. And then the article goes on and on, and they can see these glowing neurons under a microscope in real time. And uh, it's amazing. Again, it's every day now we're seeing interesting revelations that will help pave the road and the breadcrumbs for brain-computer interfaces. And I imagine more complex jellyfish and uh, similar organisms will help uh, play a critical role in that. So thank you for that brilliant share, Thomas. Then Thomas also found an interesting one about human trials find common food additives alter gut biomes in humans. A first-of-its-kind study investigating the effects of a common food additive on human gut bacteria has found the emulsifier called carbomethylcellulose can alter gut biome, and it's in nearly everything that you eat. It's a first-of-its-kind study that, that, uh, that a common food additive on human gut bacteria has found the emulsifier can alter the quality and composition of the microbiome and potentially increase a person's risk of chronic uh, intestinal inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, not really a surprise, but it's artificial, artificial, sweet sweet mm -hmm. artificial, artificial sweeteners, sweeteners do the same. same. No doubt. Then, uh, believe it or not, Thomas found the same one that Carl just read about Russia and China are interfering with U.S. satellites daily, according to uh, space, the commander of the Space Force. And new CO2, carbon dioxide batteries, can reduce the cost of solar energy storage by 50%. The, the CO2 battery could greatly enhance our capacity to store renewable energy while simultaneously helping the world remove the substance um, you know, that's causing climate change. So let's suck the carbon out of the air and make batteries out of them. I'm, count me in. The next one, AI that understands object relationships from MIT News, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. AI that understands object relationships. The MIT researchers developed a machine learning model that understands the underlying relationships between objects in a scheme and can generate accurate predictions. Because if you have a bunch of blocks... 
Um, it understands that the yellow block, uh, its relationship to the green block and the blue block and, and the fact that they, how they coordinate, uh, kind of adding a, a new type of intelligence to the understanding of object relationships. And in, in, in more depressing news, I'm tweeting out now from the San Francisco Chronicle, based in San Francisco, what a coincidence, uh, that instead of holiday lights and Santa Claus decorations, downtown San Francisco retailers are greeting shoppers with plywood-encased storefronts and armed guards. Dozens of downtown San Francisco retailers were boarded up in the wake of the mass robberies. That the Louis Vuitton, And they show a photo of the Louis Vuitton store that was looted by 80 looters, and now the store has a very elegant a black plywood um, that makes it very difficult to break back into the Louis Vuitton store. And so downtown San Francisco has suffered multiple uh, lootings, coordinated lootings. And so now downtown San Francisco barely looks like a holiday shopping area and looks, you know, um, that's being protected by militarized guards. Are they citizens police? Are they crossing state lines with those uh, those weapons? <laughs> so, yeah, it's an interesting development there in downtown San Francisco. So uh, apparently, apparently, Blackwater, uh, the new company that former was known as Blackwater, is contracted by some of the shop owners. So this can get really intense if something happens. David Chang, you shared a brilliant one that you didn't mention. Let's mention it. This is fantastic. Uh, Wall Street Journal says they have an exclusive on this one that David Chang just shared that nuclear fusion startup, um, nuclear fusion is potentially the, the thing that can save all of our dumb asses here on planet Earth. This single-handedly more than any other innovation in human history might actually save our, save humanity by bringing the cost of energy production down to zero globally for everybody forever unlimited free energy forever by harnessing the power of nuclear fusion and this is incredibly good news this article it says nuclear f fusion startup lands a little investment from a couple of investors you might have heard of they just received 1.8 billion dollars of investment from none other than bill gates and george soros so the nuclear fusion race, which used to be perceived of as science fiction, I can assure you uh, when Bill Gates and George Soros commit $1.8 billion, we, are, we have now uh, left, the, left the stage of s fantasy and science fiction, and uh, this is clearly based in some kind of reality. Uh, as the startup race to generate carbon-free energy like the sun does. That's how the sun makes energy, is through nuclear fusion. So it's mimicking uh, the sun on Earth in these, you know, very specialized environments. Let's pray. We should all take a moment and pray to whatever deity you subscribe to that this comes to fruition, because <laughs> this would solve a whole lot of problems. Not only would it solve the energy crisis, it would simultaneously solve the water crisis. Because then when you have ubiquitous free energy, you can do desalinization no problem. Because it's free energy. The problem with desalinization is it's very energy intensive. So this would solve 
humanity's biggest problems, many of which are existential threats. So uh, let's pray this works. We, we still need the capacity on the other end to capture and remove uh, carbon dioxide or carbonates mm-hmm. uh, in addition to this. I mean, it can power it, but there are other ways of doing that uh, as well. So uh, yeah. we, we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, indeed. So Lavina in the audience, uh, who's been sharing a lot of great tweets lately, I got to say. So I'm tweeting this one out from her Twitter account, retweeted her tweet. And she just found this one that something called Bato, B-O-T-T-O. A robot creating works of art has just made a work of art that I have to say is stunningly gorgeous and made has made its first million. The artificial intelligent artist uses algorithms to analyze millions of works of art and produces its own and apparently just made its first million dollar piece. And it's stunning. I got to say that is that is gorgeous. And it, that really raises the endless dinner party conversation will AIs be able to make art that humans appreciate and value well uh, can you how much art have you sold is my question and could you sell a million dollar piece of art so the next one is Thomas found no we covered that one the next one from the New York Times the most powerful data broker in the world is winning oh this is that one that we kind of just glanced over about um the data battle uh, between the China and the U.S. and China appears to be winning. So I'm going to, that's a long one. The next, the next one is that uh, Google, uh, is about Google. A former Google employees are suing Google for allegedly breaching its don't be evil motto. Google, whose parent company Alphabet has promoted the the pledge of don't be evil as a core value for more than two decades and now some former employees are suing Google for being evil. This sounds like an Onion article. But uh, three former Google software engineers have sued the tech giant. Allegedly, it breached employee contracts by not honoring its don't be evil pledge. The lawsuit was filed by former employees Rebecca Rivers, Sophie Waldman, and Paul Duke at the state court in Santa Clara County, California on Monday. They allege... They were fired two years ago for fulfilling their contractual obligation to speak up if they saw Google violating its Don't Be Evil pledge. Google, whose parent company's alphabet, has promoted the pledge Don't Be Evil as a core value for more than 20 years, and it remains a part of the firm's uh, official employee code of conduct. Sky News has contacted Google for a comment and has previously said that the employees violated data security policies. And the trio had raised concerns at town halls and other forums inside Google about the company potentially selling cloud technology to immigration authorities in the United States, which at the time were engaging in detention tactics considered inhumane by activists. The workers considered the potential work evil under Google's policies, which call for acting honorably and treating each other with respect and engaging in the highest possible standards of ethical business conduct, according to the lawsuit. The company's code of conduct says workers who thinks the company may be falling short of its commitment should not stay silent, the lawsuit said. The workers are seeking an unspecified amount of damages. So it sounds like these uh, three musketeers took the idea of don't be evil and uh, thought it was wise to uh, break uh, company policies and uh, share confidential information. (laughs) Well... Holding Google accountable for don't be evil, I guess they need to be a little more clear about the correct paths for addressing and calling out 
the evil behavior. I imagine they wouldn't suggest uh, leaking it to the press. So uh, I don't think these three musketeers are going to get uh, what they're hoping for out of the court case. They were fired uh, legally, and they're claiming, well, we were just trying to hold you accountable by, by your own pledge to don't be evil, and then Google's going to correctly say, well, you here's the correct paths you should have used, not these illegal ones that would terminate your employment with us as an employer. And, well, I guess, I guess you know, if you've got a former employer that's worth that much money, it's worth a shot. So the next one is from... Sharok, the Earth's water may have come from the sun, new researchers find. Uh, Researchers at University of Glasgow say there is evidence that particles emitted by the sun created water on the surface of dust grains on asteroids. Okay. And Sam in the audience sends in this one about a new salt grain-sized camera rivals others that are 500,000 times larger. So, boy, if you thought hidden cameras were a problem before, wait till you have salt grain-sized cameras. A team of researchers announced that they have created an ultra-compact salt grain-sized camera that can capture clear, full-color video. Hello. Oh, boy. That are better than cameras 500,000 times larger. Incredible. So, just tweeted that one out. And last, but certainly not least, Tina, you did it. We saved the best for last, everybody. Here it is. Buckle in. Subway announces its Cookie Way pop-up restaurant. Subway launches pop-up shop called a Cookie Way to celebrate National Cookie Day on December 4th, dedicated to its signature cookies as a special thank you to fans serving limited edition classics and new flavor exclusives. Only real chocolate chips in the cookies, folks. These are not, this is not fake chocolate. Subway announces the Cookie Way pop-up restaurant to celebrate National Cookie Day. Thank you, Tina, for that incredibly critical tech news headline. And thank you, uh, everybody, for yet another fun tech news around the world. We will catch you again tomorrow. Please follow us on Twitter. Yes. And everywhere else. And three... Yes, sure. And please join Messi on Tech News Around Africa in CH. Thank you. Okay. See you next time, everybody. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you. When they have tuna cookies. Thank you. (laughs) Not real tuna cookies. Bye bye.